Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. Now, Baroness Denby Samoyo is a seriously impressive woman. She's worked at the World Bank and Goldman Sachs analysing global economic trends and sat on the boards of numerous FTSE 100 companies like Barclays and Chevron. She's also the author of five books, including bestsellers Dead Aid, a searing critique of development policy in Africa, and How the West Was Lost, about a series of mistakes and failures of post-war economic policy that have seen the balance of power tip towards China. On top of all that, she's a sought-after speaker and writer and advises the government on racial and ethnic disparities. I caught up with her backstage at the Centre for Policy Studies Margaret Thatcher Conference to discuss the macroeconomic challenges facing the world, what Britain can do about them, and why international finance is no longer a man's world. Alice Moyer, thank you so much for joining me on the CapEx podcast. We're here at the Margaret Thatcher Conference at the Guildhall, where you've just given a keynote address on the topic of growth. So I think I'm going to start with a sort of fairly broad but fundamental question. Why is growth important? So thank you so much for hosting me. I'm delighted to be here. And, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because amidst the numbers and the the gloom and doom uh, that we're, we're sort of challenging period that we're facing, I think it's very easy to lose that perspective. I would argue that there are a number of reasons growth is important. Um, At a very basic level, our ability to create growth um, is really important in driving our ability to provide public goods like education, like healthcare, infrastructure, um, to fight climate change uh, and and the challenges uh, around that. Um, But also, when you think more deeply, there's a lot of research that shows that economic growth is a precursor um, or a prerequisite for liberal democracy. So um, it goes beyond just the economics part of it. It's also about the politics. And indeed, if I may add on to to this list, um, growth is also important because if you are thinking about innovation, innovation in healthcare, innovation in how we deal with issues around climate and energy supply, we do need to be able to not just fund those, but also provide that that innovation and innovators are um, covered from a living standards, a material living standards place. And that will really come from uh, a greater pie being created. And that's essentially economic growth. Now, I think you set out in your speech just now really well some of the worrying trends we've seen that were, uh, that were emerging before the pandemic, but which have been entrenched of Western countries, particularly experiencing low and sluggish growth and the rise of countries which are not liberal democracies like 
China. Perhaps you could set out some of those structural challenges facing the global economy. Yes, of course. So maybe just as a rule of thumb, um, it's it's very important for us to remember that in order to double per capita incomes, and by that I mean um, to move from one level to another level in 25 years, in a generation, an economy needs to be growing by 3% per year. And if you look around the world right now, both developed and developing economies are struggling to to achieve that. The United States just had a print at 2.6. A lot of that is driven by the post-pandemic surge. Um, But we've seen the UK numbers at 0.2, already and indeed a threat of a recession. Um, But if you look around the world, especially the large uh, emerging market economies like South Africa, Brazil or Argentina, these are countries that have at least 50 million people. They were really they are really struggling to achieve that three percent number, which has a material impact on our ability to not just create economic growth for growth's sake, but to create economic growth um, to, to, to really help with human progress going forward. Um, You were right uh, in my opening remarks. um, I was very keen to point out that, of course, there are many uh, economic challenges that we're facing in the here and now. Inflation, uh, which has not been around for 40 years. Um, Issues around uh, Russia in Ukraine. uh, Issues around uh, China's zero policy, COVID policy. Um, There are a lot of these, what I would call tactical challenges Uh, that the the world is facing as we emerge from the pandemic. But it's really important, I think, to uh, understand where we are in the broader context of um, structural changes that were already occurring before the pandemic hit in earnest in 2020. Uh, Some of those themes, uh, I won't go obviously through all of them, are the fact that um, demographics are changing quite considerably. Um, Today, 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets, um, but, you know, just over the weekend, the United Nations has updated its population uh, estimates um, that we have now surpassed 8 billion people on the planet. And arguably, India is now bigger than China in a, in a, a per capita basis. In fact, uh, China's per capita income is roughly $12,000 per head. Uh, actually, India's per capita income is about 1,200, so 10 times lower um, that has enormous implications for uh, for demand. Take the example of energy. If you are at a higher per capita income, then there's more likely more investment, more opportunity to tap renewable energy or different types of energies that at this stage remain uh, relatively more expensive. If you're at a lower per capita income and you're really struggling to eke out um, opportunity, then things like coal, uh, fuels, et cetera, um, become much more uh, uh, sort of uh, affordable and uh, um, targeted. Um, But there are lots of other issues that are structural. Inequality, um, I mentioned, um, it's not just that inequality in education and healthcare, access to opportunities has widened over the last several decades. There's more worry because social mobility, the ability to be born in one one economic class and end your life in a different class, has been eroded quite considerably over the last several decades. In fact, uh, you know, as as people know, um, in the United States, social mobility has gone down by about 50%. Um, Other things we talked about, climate change, enormous headwind, um, not just because uh, we have an energy security crisis, but uh, you know we have over a billion people who have no access to energy, and that's creating or fueling 
the uh, the problem of uh, of disorderly migration around the world. So debt and productivity declines, etc. All of these things are feeding into um, the global economy. In fact, acting as headwinds. Um, but as I, I mentioned in my opening remarks, it's not just about that these things uh, have have only recently emerged. They've been around for a while. But the pandemic um, and all the challenges and disruption that that has caused has certainly accelerated the challenges of, of creating economic growth. To what extent do you think things like um, climate change and uh, demand for scarce resources and indeed inequality are headwinds or are these things that are fundamentally incompatible with the goal of economic growth? So there's no doubt about it that um, if there was ever a message from the global financial crisis, and even at that time, I, you know, I would argue that 1999, in my mind, is really a marker for when the mood music changed around global growth for growth's sake. Um, and that this notion that we're just going to pursue growth at any cost, I think really came under challenge. And in my mind, really the uh, what they call the battle, of Se- in battle in Seattle, which was against the World Trade Organization meetings um, that, was held, that were held in Seattle that year, really were a mark, um, I think, of the, the decade to come, which was very much I would argue anti-growth that, uh, you know, we not only should we not be pursuing economic growth, but, um, you know, the, the, perp- the, the measures of growth came under challenge. There was a sense that we should be looking at longevity or happiness indices. And there was definitely a move uh, away from sort of pursuing growth for, you know, at, at any or all costs uh, or what was seen as at any or all costs. And there was a sense that it was there was a, a corruption associated with that. That the the pandemic, uh, or not certainly not the pandemic, the the the, uh, the the challenge of climate was actually not being factored into these growth numbers. So everybody was obsessed with these growth numbers. But if you started to really incorporate the the costs to society, the costs to uh, to climate, etc., we were not nearly growing at those rates. And that somehow um, we've seen these massive income inequality, but also broader inequality. Uh, issues widen um, so clearly the, that pursuing growth was creating haves and have-nots and there's this whole question of whether all the benefits of growth and globalization were just accruing to those who held capital and not labor so all of this was creating or fueling this anti-growth measure um, I think we're much more sophisticated about that and you know the reality is probably the two extremes you know, the pursue growth at all costs and don't pursue growth um, are probably um, not only, um, you know, not sustainable equilibriums, but they're not desirable. Um, we don't want to live in societies that are heavily uh, unequal. Um, but at the same time, we recognize that, you know, growing the pie and distribution is not uh, a tax and redistribution is not a way of growing a pie. These types of approaches were not long term sustainable or desirable. So somewhere in the middle is the right um, number and the right place. Uh, you know, I think that using the three percent as a guide for me is always very instructive. Um, but we also need to recognize that the global economy faces enormous geopolitical challenges with the rise of ideologies and um, you know approaches to economy that are much more centralized and much more authoritarian. And I don't think we've yet calibrated for that. And where do you think the UK is on that spectrum between being anti-growth and pro-growth? We've been through um, a bit of a roller coaster recently. We had a very pro-growth prime minister who came in and boldly uh, talked about cutting taxes and being extremely focused on growing that pie. It didn't go down well. 
Um, where do you think we are now? What is your read on, on where the UK is and what challenges we are facing? So I think that's a great question because I have to believe that the fundamental message of um, Prime Minister Truss was not the one that was particularly objectionable. I think by and large, there's a recognition that growth is needed. Um, and you know, who wants to live in a recession and contracting living standards? No one. Um, what I think was a missed opportunity, and I think what people were reacting to, was there not being a clearer articulation of how that growth was going to, uh, uh, not only uh, how it was going to emerge, but what were the trade-offs or costs associated with that. So we now know about uh, the LDI and the pensions and the risks to, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of lack of clarity from OBR, but more specifically, more lack of clarity around the trade-offs between taxes and borrowing and, and spending. Um, and I think that uh, perhaps if there is a, uh, a miss or a naivete that would be ascribed to what happened, it would be that, um, you know, the markets um, and, you know, the economy, but also the average citizen, um, you know, needed more than just a, a broad vision. They needed a better articulation of a clear plan about how we were going to get to this point of growth. I, I have no doubt in my mind that growth is needed um, and that I think the average person, as I said, does not want to live in a contracting society. The fundamental belief that we want our future generations to have better living standards than our own or past generations, I think, still stands. But how we pay for it, what we must give up, um, I think, you know, needs to be clearly articulated, particularly as we're coming out of the pandemic and people feel like a lot of sacrifices were made. Um, and, and a lot of the, the remedies to the global financial crisis in 2008 have, yet, have not yet been uh, uh, sort of uh, sorted out. Uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, the UK before the pandemic was only growing at around 1.2, 1.7, somewhere between 1.2, 1.7, depending on revisions. Um, so, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in articulating the vision for sure, but how it's going to get done. And I think there's a lot of work that's required here because the global economy has become much more complicated. We chose to, to leave the European Union, um, but with that, comes much more uh, aggressive competition for quality labor, much more aggressive quality, uh, competition for investment, much more need to explain explicitly what sectors, what sorts of investments um, are uniquely and best placed to go into the United Kingdom to generate the returns on uh, investment uh, for future pensions, insurance, but also to fund uh, you know, uh, programs uh, in, in innovation. So we can no longer just, you know, uh, sort of have a broad vision without a clear articulation. We want to know specifically if I'm going to put money um, for every marginal pound I choose to put into the UK and not in Germany or France or China or US or somewhere else in the emerging markets, what are the returns? What is the cost of capital? Making sure that there's clear certainty around policy. And I think that was a big piece in the UK context. People not sure what, uh, what, what sort of policy uh, agenda continues um, in the next several years, but also just understanding what sectors are going to be important. Um, is it credible um, for the UK to, to argue that sector A is going to be an important area um, in, in, in this new world um, for the UK versus another country. So those are the things that I think we're missing. But I doubt very much 
it was a sort of, sort of anti-growth agenda in of itself because it just seems hard to me that people uh, wouldn't appreciate the need for a better NHS, you know, potentially more services as the population grows in education and infrastructure, etc. It feels that like we're speaking uh, before Jeremy Hunt delivers his budget that's coming up later this week. Yeah. And it feels like this is going to be a very cautious budget, all about balancing the books. I think we're going to see tax rises and big spending cuts. But it sounded to me like what, what you were talking about was, was having a bigger vision for the country. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but, but I feel like some of the kind of vision that this government has talked about has felt a bit like picking winners or um, sort of distributing things around the country rather than being focused on growth. If you were advising Jeremy Hunt and what he's going to say next Thursday, what, what would be your key message for him? <laughs> well, I think, so it's a great question. And look, you know, you know I, I have very little uh, basis to start uh, pointing fingers or offering advice. I think uh, it's always easy being in the peanut gallery, as they say. <laughs> um, but I will say that I think in these sorts of conversations, there needs to be a stark delineation between what I would call tactics here and now um, versus strategic long-term um, investing and, and thinking about the future and vision for the future. Um, and, you know, I, I draw a lot on my, my, my own board work in the private sector. Um, you know, there's no doubt about it on a day-to-day -day basis, governments, um, public policy organizations, uh, third sector organizations, corporations are dealing with things, headwinds every single day. And we need to, as business leaders or as policymakers, um, as, uh, as leaders in general, need to deal with those headwinds on, in, the, in the immediacy. Um, and I think the budget, uh, the chancellor's budget, without having seen it, except just you know, picking up on sort of uh, commentary, um, I think is going to address the, those type of things. The fact that inflation's 10%, the fact that there's a recession um, being uh, uh, um, sort of telegraphed for the next couple of years. The fact that there's a lot of political uncertainty remains, notwithstanding uh, the new prime minister. Um, the fact that there's a lot of global uncertainty, not just in growth, but in China, in Russia. Uh, we're going into a winter that you know could be catastrophic from an energy uh, perspective. So I think really the, the stability point is in reaction to the pandemic, but also in reaction to the need to address and to stabilize in the here and now. I don't quite believe that um, some of the bigger uh, sort of visionary questions around growth will be tackled in this budget. Um, that's what I would like because I'm a more structuralist person. I think it's always very tempting to think about here and now, but I don't. I think we should not. I mean, I could be wrong. I could be surprised to the upside, and I'd be sang, you know very sanguine. Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, of something like this happened. But I think we should anticipate that the big structural questions about massive regulatory reform, thinking about um, costs of capital, what bets, what sectors uh, the UK should be leaning in, I doubt very much we'll see that in, in this budget. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Some of the things that may be announced may have consequences for Britain's uh, place in the world or it will be kind of responses to those structural trends. So one of the things that is being talked about, and I'm interested to get your perspective on this because your first book was about foreign aid and it was very critical Mm -hmm. of um, Western countries and and the way that they were helping developing countries. One of the things that we might be seeing um, is a response to the migration crisis that we're experiencing here in Britain of diverting or, or, or of cutting the amount the percent we spend on foreign aid and diverting it to supporting migrants here. What do you think that the consequences for Britain's place in the world and for the wider world would be of something like that? Well, quite frankly, hard to say. Um, You know, my fundamental view about um, providing aid to poor countries as a tool for economic development and growth remains um, and in fact, if anything, I would say I, I might even be more sort of uh, set in my ways about it, partly because we've seen since my book was published in 2009, things have gotten worse but for donors. Donors have gotten less able to, uh, to provide um, a lot of capital and, and economic support at home. Um, they're borrowing money at, at record levels. We know debt to GDP is like over 300% globally. It's over 100% in many developed economies, not quite there in the UK. But still, we know that the ability for the fiscus um, in developed economies, the donors, has gotten materially worse as fewer people are working, labor participation rates down, growth is shrinking, as well as population is aging. So, you know, the notion that we should have developing countries where 90% of the world's population lives, relying on this donor funding as a tool for economic growth, certainly in an open-ended way, I have always and I continue to think it is problematic. Um, So, you know, I think that does that mean that there's no role for the UK or or place for the UK in the world? No, absolutely not. In fact, if anything, I would hope as somebody who uh, I, I confess was a remainer, um, would hope that the UK would uh, would lean in and continue to lean in to the um, to the needs of the globe. Um, the, the UK, you know, the, its heritage, um, its rule of law, a lot of the things that we're very familiar with, um, and indeed the fact that it continues, um, albeit in a smaller way than I would like it to be, to be an innovator. I mean, look what happened in terms of the development of the of the vaccine for uh, again for COVID. I mean, all these things are much more important, I would argue, than just, um, you know, sort of, dare I say it, 
um, continuing to do the same thing and expecting a different result. I mean, we have enough evidence now that this notion of, of uh, handing out uh, checks very often, even notwithstanding the desire for conditionalities, very often this is money that doesn't have a lot of strict conditionalities, that that is not a long-term sustainable way of creating economic growth, um, and, and, and especially not uh, the type of growth rates that we, we need to achieve um, over the next uh, several decades. So the UK does have an important role to play. Um, I think uh, sort of moving the deck chairs, dare I say the cliche of deck chairs around the Titanic here of, oh, we're going to take it away from foreign aid and give it to immigration. To me, these are often very band-aid solutions. What we need ultimately are creation of jobs, a bigger pie being created. I mean, it's not that cryptic in many responses. I'm not at all saying that there's no place for aid in an emergency, in a tsunami, a pandemic, etc. Yes, absolutely. There, um, there is a need for that. But I think we do need to quickly get out of this mindset that um, as part of the vision for global structural uh, economic and, and human progress over the long term, uh, that somehow aid needs to be the, the the only or one of the most critical pieces of that. I'm, I'm much more skeptical. And, you know, indeed, I think the fact that China is now the leading trading partner, foreign lender and investor in the emerging markets should tell you that, you know, they're doing that in a very material way, an important, uh, impactful way without being only an aid provider. We've been talking about sort of big global trends and ideas. But if I may, I mean, if I may get a bit more personal, you've had a fascinating and really inspirational life. Thank I'm just you. interested in how your background, you know, growing up in Zambia as it was emerging from colonial rule, how, you, how your life has affected your ideas and influenced your thinking. So, you know, dare I say it, I'm uh, very, very uh, fortunate that I, uh, <laughs> it sounds kind of crazy, that I did not grow up in a place that was very ideological. Um, you know, I, I, I was born in Zambia post-colonial uh, period. Um, certainly there was very much a, a leaning towards British uh, values, um, British uh, rule of law, etc. Um, but, you know, in a sense, uh, one of the best things that has happened to me is I've been able to travel to around 80 countries around the world for business, um, for pleasure, for, for studies, um, but also, uh, you know, these are countries that are very different, developed, developing, authoritarian, democratic, market capitalist, state centric. Um, and it's been very informative for someone like myself who fundamentally views myself as being a scientist and inquisitive about the way the world works, what works, what doesn't, recognizing the broader historical con construct. China was the largest economy in GDP terms in the 1700s. Why is it that the Industrial Revolution started in Britain? What happened there? You know, that, that meant that, that trend of events meant that China was uh, a low-growth, impoverished economy for 300 years. So what happened? Why did the Industrial Revolution happen here and not in Zambia or elsewhere? Um, and so these are questions, and I think not being burdened, dare I, say, dare I say it, by ideology or indoctrination about what works and what doesn't, this is always the way, has been incredibly helpful, um, not just in the public policy space, because I am very open-minded, notwithstanding everything I've said uh, today about growth, um, but I think it's been very helpful in terms of my business interactions as well. And really thinking about where the world goes. I think there's no doubt about it in my mind that the answer is somewhere in the middle of the road. I think 
you know, we can sit here and be critical of, of China, um, uh, of course, and in, in, they can also be very critical of, of places in the West, the United States, and the income inequality in the United States is, is particularly uh, problematic. Um, but they're probably learning from both places. Um, and I think in the, the UK has a very prime central role, not just historically, but going forward in helping the world to, to shape and think about these questions in an objective way um, on the basis of such a successful run for this economy in this country. I'm also interested in your experience being a woman. I, I don't know about you, but I find this economics public policy space can be very female, uh, sorry, male dominated. Um, uh, equally, you've, you've written recently about, um, about boards. Again, FTSE 100 companies, I think, is something like 60% male. Yeah. How does how has your experience as a woman informed your thinking? And, and do you think female representation on boards and things is important, or do you think it's a sideshow? So first of all, the good news is that it's changing. I've been on uh, corporate boards for about 12 years now. And when I joined, I was the only um, female and visibly minority on uh, most of my boards. Um, and I, I will say that I think... Anybody who wants to compete in the 21st century, and that's whether you're a country and you want to put your best foot forward and compete uh, globally to attract talent, to attract capital, or indeed if you want to compete in terms of ideas, if you're an NGO, if you want to compete in terms of the, the company space, corporate business space, um, you want the best team. And the notion that the best team looks like uh, you know, X, Y, and Z is clearly is is not only insane. I mean, we look at the the uh, football teams or uh, any sports team; they they will go for talent. Um, but it's also, uh, I think, is undermining and and really puts um, all these institutions at risk if we're not going for talent wherever it can be. So, as I said, the good news is that that's changing a lot. You know, I think it's most people would find it dare I say, absurd to, uh, to walk into a room now where there isn't a, a better reflection of the society in which we live, which is more diverse by, by gender, by you know, religion, background, uh, you know, race, etc. Um, and I think that that's the better for society. Um, and so it, it is important. You know, there's been a lot of work um, about blind interviews because the biases both sides uh, you know, we don't. We I think it's not good for society to be in a situation where women and people of color, etc., are put in positions of, of power or influence or given opportunities that they're, they're not equipped for, without the the requisite support. Um, but at the same time, I think we fundamentally need to accept that um, the talent is out there, and there's no doubt about it. People have been disadvantaged in terms of. Uh, access, uh, you know, people from different backgrounds from access, but also really tooling up so that they can be competitive for the roles when they, they show up. Um, but I remain very optimistic. I mean, look, we, we you know, I think it's kind of well known now we've had three female prime ministers in Britain. I mean, it's hard to win and compete in politics, but look at the business realm. We've had senior women in technology, new technologies, old technologies, in mining, in banking, um, in many important and very large sectors in the economy, in the NGO space, et cetera. So, um, you know, and, and even in the emerging world, multiple places. I think Africa's had three female presidents. So I'm optimistic. Yes, the competition is is tough, but rightly so, because society... 
um, for, for countries, but for companies, for organizations, it's, it's competition and it's, it's tough and we want the best, best team assembled. Well, that's a nice optimistic note. I suppose uh, we're coming to the end of our time, but uh, given the enormous challenges that you set out at the beginning, how optimistic do you feel for the future of the global economy? <laughs> So very optimistic. Um, you know, what I, I didn't point out during my opening remarks is that, um, you know, at the, at the 1929 economic crash, which is the Great Depression, the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Index peaked at 381 points and came crashing down. The next time it hit 381 points was 25 years later. So there's no, why am I saying this? So 25 years of economic malaise, slow growth, high unemployment, really an unwind in globalization, all of things that I would argue were not good for society. And it took 25 years. It's a whole generation of people who lived in this quite depressive state. I don't think we need to go through that. And I think if public policy leans in to address these headwinds, Again, not just the tactics of what we are here and now, but really thinks about what we need to do to invest and generate good returns in capital and labor and society and climate, etc. in generations to come, I think we'll be in good stead. And there's no reason we shouldn't be in that place. Um, I just think uh, sometimes we get caught up in the here and now and, and don't spend enough time in the long term. And that's where I think it really matters. Dandy Samoya, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.